Hey, look who it is. Grab a seat and I'll get to brewing. This episode, I speak to Jeff Maynard to shed some light on what Sir Hubert Wilkins got up to in the Arctic between Antarctic projects, and I recount the exploits of Gino Watkins in Greenland, mapping and meteorologising in anticipation of new air routes between the longitudinal hemispheres. As I mentioned several times in the interview, Jeff's most recent book, Antarctica's Lost Aviator, went to press earlier this year, and I recently saw it on bookshop shelves for the first time. It's an excellent read and demonstrates how much a person can find out about a life lived almost a century ago if they're willing to head to the site of the source documents and spend a lot of time poring over them. Again and again, Jeff shows the difference between what I get up to and what actually constitutes historical research, and in addressing the life and legacy of Lincoln Ellsworth to the extent his new book does, he's filled a substantial gap in the Antarctic story. Here's Jeff. Yeah. You're not supposed to be in the dive hut, you fool. No cats in Antarctica. Yeah, that's not going to work. Oh yeah, there were. There were wild, <laughs> wild cats left at Deception Island. <laughs> just gone feral. You said you'd, you've got footage of Deception Island from Wilkins taking his cameras there. Was yeah. That, was that... Um, I've got a little bit of, from... Part of Cope's expedition. That that does exist. I, I don't have copies of that. There is the, That's in the British, you know, film archive, whatever, Cope's. Obviously Shackleton. Uh, not much from Wilkins in 1928, but there is quite a bit of film of Deception Island. It was still a whaling station in 1929. There's quite a bit on that expedition. Oh, I, I say quite a bit, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes sort of thing. He's, he's, there's whale carcasses everywhere in his little rowboat, a little motorboat going around and put the camera on the front and you see all these... Um, huts and uh, things and wild carcasses all just lined up and all that sort of stuff huge um, so there's a bit 1929 um, and then there's the next lot of film he has is the second Ellsworth expedition when they went across there they unload the polar star and they try to start it and they break a conrod in the engine and then um, Wilkins goes off to to South America to pick one up and go back uh, and gets back. That's the only, well, it's the only it's a film of, of Deception Island then. But by the second Ellsworth expedition, the island had been abandoned because the depression, had, you know, the whalers had shut up shop and, um, and uh, left. So, yeah, the second, the second Ellsworth expedition was 34, 35. Quite a bit of film of the that would probably would have been the first film taken since the whalers had left, right? And uh, everything's in pretty good order, all the um, you know, little jetting, all that sheds and things. Um, so that, that was done then. I wonder when the cats died out. I don't know, but when you see them turn up in that 34 35, you'll see cats scampering across the snow. So the whalers left cats there. They went feral and they survived. Right. Um, so I think the whalers left about 32. Oh. So, so they survived a couple of years. Plenty, plenty of penguins. Yeah, yeah I, I reckon they would have just eaten, eaten penguins. 
you do see film of these cats scurrying across the snow and um, uh, you know the feral things so uh, yeah they've, they've survived and bred for a couple of years um, how long they survived after that I don't know well gotten your <coughs> pardon me gotten you along tonight to talk about Wilkins submarine yep. adventures in the north yes. because that's the the gap between the last mention in the series and his next mention returning with Ellsworth. So most most recently, Ice Coffee covered his exploits, getting his Lockheed Vegas airborne yes. from Deception Island and then from um, the Antarctic Peninsula. What did he get up to in the interim? Before he went to the second Antarctic Peninsula expedition, he already had his mind set on taking a submarine under the Arctic ice. He, he actually had his mind set on it for quite a while. Um, up until 1925, everyone was pretty certain there was land near the North Pole. Uh, it, Cook and Peary had both said they'd seen land in the distance. You know, Peary was probably believed more than Cook, but Peary said he saw land. Everyone thought there was land there. So when Amundsen and Ellsworth flew off in 1925 to try and get to the North Pole in the flying boats, they were looking for land. Everyone really believed it was there. Um, by 1927, um, Wilkins had landed on the ice in his 1927 expedition. He'd taken soundings. He saw that the ocean was quite deep. Um, and then he flew over it in 1928 and couldn't find any land and basically said, it's a deep ocean. And this was all part of a bigger plan at that time to sort of link the north and the south or the Arctic and the Antarctic. It's, it's kind of like um, to get data from both ends of the world about weather. It was sort of international geophysical year done in 1920s in a way. They really were trying to set up stations. And Wilkins said you cannot set up weather stations when there's, when there's no land. The only way to do it is in a submarine. And he focused on that. He, he actually announced that in 1928 he wanted to take a submarine to the North Pole. Um, and a few people had put their hand up to help him. Uh, unfortunately, they were the wrong people. Uh, one of them was Simon Lake, who was a, an eccentric submarine designer. And Wilkins was in a bit of a... Um, he was riding a wave. He was riding a wave of fame, um, He'd just been knighted in 1928. It was all happening. He was he was being lauded everywhere as, as, as you know this great explorer, and he didn't really think it through very well because he was rushing off to go back down to the peninsula again in the Antarctic, and basically said to Simon Lake, "Great, you organise the submarine. I'm going back down south again, do some more exploring for the British, then I'll come back and then we'll get the submarine, then we'll head off to the North Pole." It was all a bit of a a frenzy of, of, of celebrity in a way. Um, and so when he'd been down to the peninsula for the second time with the Lockheed Vegas, he got back to New York about March or April in 1929. And, um, uh, sorry, my mistake, 1930, he got back then. Um, and while he was in the in Antarctic, the, the, the 1929-1930 expedition, um, you know, the stock market crash, November 29, I think it was. But things had turned bad. The roaring 20s were, were over. Money was short. And he'd come back and he'd made a commitment to take the submarine to the North Pole. Uh, Simon Lake, who's an eccentric, 
um, had uh, organised a submarine and um, and was plans were well underway. Wilkins was sort of locked in. Wil- Wilkins sort of came back in 1930, got back and was, was sort of locked in. He'd given his word, sure, I'll go to the North Pole in a submarine. And um, uh, by that time, plans had sort of progressed to a point where he didn't want to pull out. But uh, Simon Lake had done a few things wrong. He, he'd um, picked out a submarine from an Annex World War submarine. Um, it was decrepit. It was rusting. It was falling apart. It was the wrong submarine. The Navy had agreed to give it to Wilkins or rent it to him for a dollar. Um, and then Simon Lake was busy sort of inventing things for it that were never going to work. And so Wilkins was basically left with the job of trying to raise as much money as he could to finance this expedition. Uh, meanwhile, Simon Lake, the submarine designer, was designing just... Things were absolutely absurd. He, Simon Lake started designing submarines, and he was an old man by this time, but in, in the late 19th century, and he was designing wooden submarines with wheels on the bottom that were going to roll along <laughs> the seabed. And that was that was still his thinking in a lot of ways. So he, he, he said, look, the way to go under the ice is to put a sort of a, a wooden uh, superstructure on top of the submarine and we'll slide, slide under the ice like an upside-down sort of sledge type thing. And then he, he, he wanted to have a hydraulic battering ram at the front of the submarine so when it hit the ice, it wouldn't shock the submarine. Now, you know, the whole ocean is a hydraulic battering ram. You can't shatter things, you know, if you try and do that underwater, it doesn't work. But he spent all this money trying to put this hydraulic battering ram on the front of the submarine. And then he'd have an arm that was, would extend on top of the submarine with a wheel on it so that when they were under the ice, they'd extend the arm and the wheel would roll along underneath the ice. And, and so it was it was really 19th century silly thinking from Simon Lake. But Wilkins was committed. I think they made about 27 modifications to this submarine, which took all the money. Where the, with a submarine, you have to worry about, you know, the hull doesn't leak. The, the, the ballast tanks will fill up with water and blow their water out so you can go up and down. And your diesel engines work. You know, they're, they're pretty much the basics. Um, they ignored all that. Um, so, But Wilkins was committed, and he knew about a year before they sailed he was never going to make it. Um, yeah, it just wasn't working. But he was committed. He'd raised money. Um, he had backers, and, and so he, he left New York with a lot of fanfare. In 19, um, early 1931, um, the submarine broke down. The, the plan was to go across the Atlantic, get to England, go north, Norway, up to the Arctic ice. Um, the, the submarine that barely left New York it was broken down. It ended up getting towed across the Atlantic because a, um, a US Navy ship heard a distress signal. They towed it across. It spent a couple of months in, um, in Ireland getting repaired. And then it sort of staggered up to Norway and half the crew quit. And, but again, he, Wilkins was obligated and um, he went north. Uh, he couldn't get the thing to submerge. So, uh, but he, he needed to get underneath the ice just to prove that he could go under the ice. So they basically found a large ice flow 
and they did it twice, and they basically rammed it with the submarine. They, they tilted the, they, they flooded the forward ballast tanks, and, um, and so the whole thing sat nose down, and they, they charged at this, um, this big ice flow, and they got the nose under. And the conning tower of this thing, funnily enough, had little portholes, and Wilkins filmed out the portholes and took still photographs out the portholes with a little camera, and he took the first sort of under-ice photographs and then they came out and then they did it again and he got off and he stood on the actual ice flow and filmed it from the outside and the crew pushed it under a second time uh, but the, as they got under the ice flow just kind of moved forward you know there was, was some, um didn't work but anyway he filmed it he, he he got back they got back to norway the crew were pretty much rebelling by this time just saying look this is not working let's go back but he'd met what commitments he felt he had to meet as best he could. He got back to Norway and um, uh, there was not enough money left in the kitty to pay off the crew. So uh, Lincoln Ellsworth had been sponsoring this thing the whole time. Lincoln Ellsworth had got involved about a year earlier, originally given him about $50,000. Uh, Wilkins had had to go back to him and get another 50000 and then when they were stuck in Norway, he had to wire Ellsworth and said, we need more money to pay off the crew. So Ellsworth ended up giving him another 20000 And um, uh, they paid the crew off. Um, Wilkins came back to America and um, they, they scuttled the submarine. Um, but what it did do was leave him um, embarrassed in a way. But it left him in a moral debt to Ellsworth, who was... It was called the Wilkins Ellsworth Transarctic Submarine Expedition. Ellsworth's name was on the on the letterhead, but he didn't want to go along. He was just sort of writing out checks. Um, but it left Wilkins in this moral debt to Ellsworth, and Ellsworth by this time said, "Well, everything else has been done. Nobody's flown across Antarctica or seen the interior of Antarctica. Um, no one's crossed from one side to the other. That's my vision." Um, you kind of owe me, you you sort it out, you do the work and I'll fly across. And that was where Wilkins um, basically then had to, to do that for Ellsworth as a way of sort of paying back. It wasn't, it wasn't a legal debt or a financial debt because Ellsworth was sponsoring the thing. <coughs> um, but Wilkins felt a moral debt. Well, we've discussed this before. He was a very dutiful man. He almost has a, a 19th century... Um, sensibility that if he says he will do something for someone he will break himself to do it very much that was part of his character it was um, um, uh, very strict Methodist parents you know you gave your word you followed through you worked hard you know you sat on you know hard wooden chairs because that's what God wanted you to do uh, it was 19th century thinking for sure I also think he was a little bit OCD. He just got fixated on things. And when he said, I'm going to help you fly across Antarctica, he, he, got, he got fixated on it as well. He had a, an obsessive personality um, that, that saw him collect everything and, and, and do odd th things that I would consider odd. But that was part of his obsessive nature. So once he'd, once he'd said to Ellsworth, you know, I'll, I'll help you get across Antarctica, um, he didn't stop until it was done. Anybody else would have walked away because it took Ellsworth you know, three expeditions and four or five years to do it. You know, But uh, Wilkins just hung in there and that was his nature. 
I'm going to cover those forays in coming episodes of the series and draw heavily on Antarctica's Lost Aviator, which I just saw in the bookshops for the first time um, a couple of days ago. So congratulations on Thank you. getting the distribution out. Um, I think someone of Shackleton or Bird's mean would have told Ellsworth to go jump after the second attempt. Do you think that... that I, I think someone of uh, Shackleton, uh, Bird, Amundsen, pretty much anybody else wouldn't have gone near Ellsworth in the first place. Oh. They, they wouldn't, they wouldn't, you know, he was not the sort of guy you, you know, inverted commas, get into bed with. He was, he was wealthy, but he was also uh, very apathetic. He suffered depression. Uh, he was just confused. He really didn't know what he wanted to do. He'd suggest he do something and then he'd change his mind and everything like that. I, I think a, a Shackleton would have been quite happy to take his money, but a Shackleton wouldn't have wanted anything, wouldn't have wanted him on the ship, you know. It was just, he would have been very difficult, Ellsworth. He, in many ways, he was just petulant. Uh, in many ways, he was a sort of a spoiled child, but he's also, as I said, he suffered depression. He um, um, just didn't know what he wanted. So, so Ellsworth was lucky in finding a personality like Wilkins that, hung in there and did it for him because everyone else would have probably sat down and had a couple of ports and cigars with him and thought, I never want to talk to this guy again. You know, um, uh, he, he, he would have been extremely difficult and vain as well as, you know, everything else. So, uh, and, uh, and also Ellsworth was, because he was vain, uh, nobody in his orbit was allowed to get any publicity or... Um, be seen as helping him, you know, it was all himself. Wilkins, when he signed his contract at the start of the Ellsworth expeditions, um, uh, basically signed a clause that said, you know, I won't, I won't get any, my name won't be mentioned in any newspapers. When you return to America, I will wait, I think it was six weeks or two months before I return, so I don't take any publicity. Uh, you know, I will stay in separate hotels and all this kind of stuff. This this was the agreement from the beginning. And Al Ellsworth was like that. Um, he, he really wanted the sort of um, the notoriety. He just didn't want to have to do any work for it. And you're heading to South Australia for the Wilkins? Um, was it a festival or a... There, there is one. That th no, I'm not. Uh, 31st of October, I think there is this this year, if that's the one you're talking about. Of course, it's Wilkins' birthday, the 31st of October, and being born in South Australia, they each year they, they hold an event. I've been across a couple of times, not going this year, um, but they're, they're terrific events. And the great thing about Wilkins is he seems to be getting a little bit more attention, a little bit more, you know, 10 years ago, or certainly 20 years ago, if you, you could walk into the South Australian Museum and say, you know, who was Sir Hubert Wilkins, and they'd look at you as sort of like cows watching a train go past. But um, now you can kind of walk in, and they're saying, "Yeah, yeah, Wilkins Homestead," and it's all, it's all. Um, he's he's kind of getting on people's radar, which is great. Yes. You know, and, and those events particularly are, are terrific. Yeah. I met a fellow at your presentation in Yarraville several months ago yep. who's working on a book about the the supernatural facets of Wilkins' interests, the the telepathy. 
Yeah, you're probably talking about Stephen Carthew. That's him, yeah. Yeah, yeah Steve, Stephen is one of the, the, the driving, in fact, probably the driving force behind the Wilkins Foundation, which is the South Australian organisation. That's And Stephen's from South Australia, um, from Adelaide, and he's been working on that. And he's always been fascinated by that aspect of Wilkins, which is the, oh, I say the supernatural, but Wilkins... Um, mental telepathy experiments, Wilkins' beliefs and all that, because that's another whole other aspect to the guy. He, he really developed a lot of beliefs and belief systems that a lot of us might look and sort of say, mm, not quite sure, you know, a bit strange. Um, but uh, Wilkins was, was very much into it. Like I say, he was conducting thought experiments. He... Um, uh, the Urantia Society, which is a society that was established when people started channeling alien forces and voices and writing them all down in the 1920s. Uh, Wilkins, very much involved in all that. You know, we... we um, uh, but it, largely, in a lot of ways, it was an attempt to marry science and Christianity. Uh, Christianity took a bit of a beating in the first half of the 20th century and that people said, well, you know, this can't be true, this can't have happened. We're, you know, now it's more scientific. And it was threatened. Um, and, and this was an attempt to sort of explain it all as a, um, in a scientific terms. So Jesus was a, from another planet and, um, you know, we, we were colonised. Adam and Eve were early colonists and... Um, and in that temp, in that you could see what appealed to Wilkins because he was highly religious but also scientific. So if there was someone saying, "Yeah, we've got these alien voices saying, yeah, you know, um, thousands of years ago we colonised it and sent Adam and Eve there in a spaceship and they started and then you know when the time was right we sent Jesus," um, uh, Wilkins was all for it. You know, uh, it's probably tell by my tone. I'm probably not as confident in its authenticity as a lot of people. Um, but, but well, because they published in what they called the Urantia book in the 1950s, which was a copy of all these um, uh, uh, recordings from these alien voices. And there was a falling out within the Urantia society because the main driver of copying all this down, people started accusing him of... of, of um, uh, at his own stuff, you know, it was it was so far, and then he said no, 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 and he started adding all his own stuff about certain Christian beliefs. And people said, you know, show us the original papers where you, that was all transcribed, and you know, by the person person speaking while they were asleep. And he said, no, no, I've destroyed all the original papers. You have to believe me, which is probably not the first time that's happened with a religion. Um, so, so. Um, there was falling outs within Uranus society, like a lot of those things. It hadn't even got off the ground, and it was people dividing up into groups. Uh, but Wilkins carried a copy of the Urantia book, which is a massive, well over a thousand pages of all these, you know, transcriptions from the aliens. Uh, carried it with him all his life, and he'd make notes and all that kind of thing, and um, uh, had it with him when he died. He it became his. It was very much his belief very solid with it. I've actually recently found a connection between Antarctica and L. Ron Hubbard in okay. 
John W. Carpenter, who wrote Who Goes There, which was the basis of what became The Thing from Another Planet and The Thing, yes. um, was L. Ron Hubbard's publisher for a while ah. and agent. And he he encouraged other science fiction authors more than he wrote himself. John W. Carpenter was a competent writer, but he yes. was more into making sure that the, the magazines were full of the latest. And he really did a lot for L. Ron Hubbard's career. So... I'm starting to see more and more threads of esoteric supernatural beliefs coming into the the Antarctic story as I go along. That people, that's that's people, interesting, yeah. People took their own religions there. I think there's 11 churches yeah. on the continent. But it is also becoming part of its own mythology as people yeah. spend more time thinking about Antarctica. And the most interesting direct cross-sect... Um, crossing with my own path was when I was presenting about mythology and Antarctica once. Someone asked me where the UFOs go yeah. in and out. No, sorry, I, I dismissed the idea of the hollow earth. Oh, yes, yeah. And they came up to me after the lecture and said, the UFOs are going somewhere, Matt. Yeah, of course they are. And I, I didn't know how to respond yeah. to that. <laughs> yeah, well, um, Wilkins did make, uh, he was speaking to... Um, students of the paranormal, if you like, in the 1950s. And he, he basically said, um, and I'm paraphrasing him because I can't remember exactly what he said, but he said, if there's anywhere on the planet you're going to experience God, it will be in Antarctica because there is nothing there contaminated by the hand of man. He said, you know, wherever you go, there's signs of life and all that. But if you go to Antarctica where there's just nothing, everything's unattached and spend time there, you will sense. I think he used the words, you will sense the creator. And I thought, oh, well, that's probably true if you're going to sense something further out. And, of course, Bird, when he locked himself in a box under the ground for ages and went nuts, um, uh, he said, you know, he saw and heard God and all that kind of thing. So perhaps spend enough time in silence and you're going to, to hear something. But uh, Wil Wilkins always said, you know, this, it's the one place on earth you will you will, you will um, uh, touch the creator or some more words to that effect, you know. So there, there is. Now, so, some trivia while we're on that is Wilkins, when he was um, looking for the lost Russian aviators, wrote a book on mental telepathy with Harold Sherman. And Harold Sherman was into this stuff as well. In fact, one of Harold Sherman's novels, because he was a novelist, one of the Harold Sherman novels was called The Green Man, who came from Mars. So when we sort of talk about little green men from Mars, the man who came up with that expression was Harold Sherman, who did the mental telepathy book with Wilkins. Uh, and so in the 1950s, you'll find a Harold Sherman, The Green Man, who was from, that's where we get our green men from Mars, was Harold Sherman. So um, that's, that's another expedition that I've, I won't have time in the series yeah. to cover was Wilkins flying in Russian-built Catalina seaplanes. Yes. Searching for missing aviators. Aviators. And at prescribed times, he would try and transmit thoughts to Harold Sherman. Yes. Yes. Um, that, that was basically... That was driven by Harold Sherman. Harold Sherman said, you're going up there, let's do these thought experiments. I'll sit in my little office or my study or studio or whatever in New York you know, we'll, we'll arrange times in the day when you describe what you can see. 
and, and so Wilkins went off and Harold Sherman sat in his office writing, you know, white, which was a safe bet, <laughs> things like that, you know, sky, water, you know, so it was pretty safe bets, you know. Um, but but that that was, there was there was quite a lot of accuracy in there um, and there was a lot of fudging the figures by, by Harold Sherman as well. When you get into their correspondences, you know, he was fudging things as well. But they produced the book Thoughts Through Space and, um, you know, it's... It was been around forever, kind of thing, as, as these thought experiments. And, and Harold Sherman believed a lot more than Wilkins did. You know, Wilkins far more went along with it. Didn't take, took it far more tongue in cheek than Harold Sherman ever did. Thank you so much for your time once again, Jeff. And keep your eyes out for Antarctica's Lost Aviator on bookshelves in bookshops. Coming your way soon, I'm sure. Containing this episode's focus on things happening in the north. The British Arctic Air Route Expedition headed to Greenland to map coasts and take meteorological measurements as groundwork for proposed air links between the UK and Canada. Flights regularly pass over the Arctic today, well above the tropospheric weather, and navigating with electronic systems. But in the late 1920s, the technology of the day limited aircraft to altitudes where the weather was still strongly influenced by the ground below it, and navigators still largely relied on contact with the ground particularly at latitudes where proximity to the magnetic poles caused massive magnetic variation that changed quickly as an aircraft flew along its course. Airlines wanted better maps and a finer-grained understanding of weather along potential flight paths before they would commit to taking the shorter Great Circle route flights by passing into the higher latitudes. Key player, Henry George Watkins known by most acquaintances as Gino, came to love mountaineering during school holidays spent in the Lakes District and family holidays in Chamonix and Switzerland. He studied at Trinity College, Cambridge, where he saw Raymond Priestley lecture on his experiences in Antarctica, firing an interest in exploration. Priestley introduced Watkins to James Wordy as the endurance veteran planned an expedition to East Greenland for the northern summer of 1926. Watkins put his hand up for a berth, but the last slot went to Augustine Courtauld off the back of a sizeable donation to the expedition funding. A proposed 1927 return to East Greenland saw Wordy offer the engineering student Watkins a berth. Gino spent the intervening months learning to ski and honing his climbing, and his disappointment at Wordy postponing his expedition led the 19-year-old to organise his own expedition to Edge Island in the Svalbard archipelago. Watkins drew together a small team of experts in a surprisingly short time, and the rigour of his efforts in the proposed surveying and sampling work drew the approval of, and some funds from, the Royal Geographical Society, and more of both from Cambridge University. Watkins chartered the motor vessel Hyman, previously used in Wordy's Greenland efforts to carry his party of nine from Tromso, Norway, to Edge Island in late July 1927. The expedition spent a month on the island, and while poor weather prevented surveying on all but five days, the foray received a lot of British approval, in part because it was led by a 19-year-old. The Royal Geographical Society awarded Watkins the Cuthbert Peak grant, and put up £300 and a cache of instruments for his next expedition, a three-person exploratory survey of the southern half of the Labrador Peninsula. This next expedition left London in late June 1928. The summer months, spent in company of a local guide, 
saw them canoeing the lakes and river systems, but an axe accident saw the foray cut short. Watkins stayed on in the region as winter set in, and covered a lot of territory man-hauling equipment and provisions all over the landscape. Supplemental dog traction applied when dogs came available, but Watkins never got enough in hand to haul the sledges without human assistance. Watkins and his companions experienced many privations in their peregrinations, but came through intact and contributed a lot of plane table survey and compass traverse data to inform the dispute between Canada and Newfoundland over exactly where the border of Labrador lay. Gino Watkins, now experienced in Arctic survival throughout the year and alert to the advantages of canoes over sledges in traversing the Arctic margins, and figuring aircraft would serve even better for getting surveyors on site, felt well prepared for his next and most ambitious project. Watkins began preparing for his 1929 summer expedition as soon as he returned to England. He wanted to map a great circle route between England and Winnipeg, affording faster and more efficient air travel by passing above the Arctic Circle, and his planning efforts ramped up to match the scale of the ambition. Calling for two aircraft, a winter quarters hut, sledging rations and equipment, and a party of at least a dozen members, Watkins, still only 21, estimated an overall cost of £12,000 for a full year of survey and meteorology work. Given the success he enjoyed in his previous outings, Watkins received support from both scientific and exploratory corners, and a management committee formed featuring James Wordy and presided over by the Prince of Wales, Prince Edward, who became King Edward VIII in 1936 and abdicated the throne because of his marriage proposal to the double divorcee Wallace Simpson, and the pair of them made pariahs of themselves with their Nazi-sympathising and pro-appeasement position in the lead-up to and during the Second World War, resulting in a governorship in the Bahamas for the duration of the conflict to avoid the by then Duke of Windsor acting as the centre of intrigue for German intelligence and counterintelligence in Europe, and to prevent his leaking Allied war plans to German officials, as he was accused of doing in 1940. Lots of Nazi sympathisers feature in coming episodes and actual Nazis in Antarctica, before we're done with the 1930s. Given the rise in neo-Nazi rhetoric and activity, even in Australia and New Zealand, in the current political climate, I'm going to cane the ideology and its proponents at every opportunity. And in case one of them is listening and wants to give me a, well actually, note, I know that members of the National Socialist Party didn't usually refer to themselves as Nazis. Nazi is a diminutive form of an old Latin name, Ignatius, the fiery one, a name which also lies at the etymological roots of the word nachos. A common name in Bavaria, the German form Ignaz became the label for any half-witted peasant yokel in the same way a cartoon Australian might be called Bruce. The short form, Nazi, was used as a dismissive reference to National Socialists. National Socialists tried to reappropriate it, but the attempt didn't take and very few documents from within the party used the term. It's only neo-Nazis have ever worn that label with any pride, and if you think that pride is warranted, you can fuck right off and stop listening right now because you're an asshole. Gino Watkins selected a team of young and fit colleagues, ending up with a party of 14, only three of whom, including Watkins, held High Latitude's experience. I normally list everyone involved in a small expedition, but this being a brief vignette of an expedition, geared mostly to flesh out subsequent events in Antarctica, you mainly need to know that Augustine Courtauld, who pipped Watkins for the final berth in James Wordy's 1926 expedition, served on the committee and on the expedition, 
and was joined by Sergeant Lieutenant Edward Bingham as expedition doctor, also joined by another of James Wordy's mentees, Australian surveyor John Rymill, and meteorologist Quinton Riley. Watkins joined the University Air Squadron while at Trinity College, and this brought him into contact with the pilots for the expedition. Flight Lieutenants D.F. and Cousins joined as first pilot and assistant pilot photographer, but it was aero engineering graduate Wilfred Edward Hampton who joined as second pilot and mechanic who is of most interest in this series. After graduating from the aero engineering course at Cambridge, Hampton spent a year working for de Havilland, the aircraft manufacturer that produced the moth biplane Mawson took south as part of the Banzari. His connection to de Havilland helped in the purchase of two DH-60 moth airframes with ski and float accoutrement for the BAARE. Watkins spent a lot of the money the committee threw together on the Vittles, a lot of it comprising a carefully mapped sledging diet comprising more lipids and less hard tack than previous British sledging teams ate. A week-long trial on this diet while still in London saw the guinea pigs nauseated, but Watkins knew it would serve well in the cold months in a cold place. He also purchased a prefabricated trapper's hut from Norway to act as winter quarters. I don't know what the ship did in the ten years between carrying Sir Ernest Shackleton to his death and Gino Watkins using it to position his expedition in the Faroe Islands, where they collected the 49 West Greenland Huskies tagged to serve the expedition's sledging needs, and further to Reykjavik, Iceland, and on to the East Greenland coast and a fjord to the south of Ungmugsalik, now called Tusselak. But the quest did the job required of it, the dearth of open ocean crossings and long distances likely matching its warped keel and shitbox boiler better than the last task given it that this series recounted. Championship length sentence. The team erected the trapper's hut on the shores of the fjord and used it as the base of operations for sledging and flying. Over the next 13 months, seven journeys explored the geography and plane table surveys gathered data to delineate a more granular and accurate map of the East Greenland coast and hinterland than previously available. Aerial photography joined the dots between ground truth control points, and the resulting cartography saw the expedition members fated in Denmark and the United Kingdom, all participants receiving the Polar Medal from King George the V, the first of their kind handed out for an Arctic project in over 60 years. Watkins also received the Founders Medal from the Royal Geographical Society for his competent and inspiring leadership that pushed his colleagues to excel in their field while in the field by setting an example of extremely hard work. The meteorological data gathered by the expedition was the first of its kind for most sites at which the BAARE made measurements, and the first spanning a full winter at Winter Quarters and Ice Cap Station. Ice Cap Station, a grand name for a tent and two igloos, lay two and a half kilometres above mean sea level on the Polar Dome. August Coulthard volunteered to stay there through the winter darkness to accrue unique data crucial to the establishment of air services across the Arctic. I'm skating through the details of the BAARE fairly quickly because from the service of the Ice Coffee Antarctic narrative arc, Watkins' work in Greenland is mostly about how key members of later Antarctic expeditions earned their high latitudes and sledging spurs, but I'd like to spend some time focusing on Coulthard's experience alone on the dome as it forms a neat compare and contrast for the first equivalent remote meteorological station in the far south, slated for some attention in coming episodes featuring Admiral Richard Evelyn Bird. 
built 130 nautical miles from winter quarters. Icecap Station comprised a large living quarters tent, surrounded by a wall of wind-breaking snow blocks, and two tunnels connecting the tent and two igloos. Icecap Station housed pairs of weather observers from August 1930, a relief pair starting their shift every six weeks, or at least that was the plan. The unexpectedly strong and frequent blizzards up on the dome, one of which blew the anemometer to pieces, as was the style at the time, made getting relief parties in place on time difficult. On one occasion, it took the relief party 39 days to make the traverse, and they had to ditch the radio and eat most of the food they carried as resupply for ice cap station. Worsening weather made it clear that keeping two men on station throughout the winter posed a logistical impossibility, but enough fuel and food could be brought in to keep one man alive through the approaching long dark. Cortard nixed a suggestion that they mothball the station for the winter months. Facing considerable pushback from other expedition members, he volunteered to stay on station alone for three months, arguing that he didn't think his frostbites would heal if he tried to head back to the coast after the difficult trek in he'd just experienced. Cortard got his way and found himself alone on the dome in December 1930. One of his most moving notes about his experience in this featureless expanse of ice features silence few of us will ever experience. He found it oppressive. All the usual minutiae of Spartan polar camp life kept him occupied. Melting snow, cooking, met obs every three hours, and clearing snow from the accommodations. Reading, designing an ideal yacht, chess matches against himself, and imagining a lavish banquet extending beyond pemmican, pea flour, margarine and hardtack stood in for entertainment and recreation. Snow blowing into the tunnels with each meteorological outing began to compact and narrow the aperture. A mid-December storm saw him digging for his life. Every three hours he had to dig the tunnel entrance clear, but with nowhere to put the shoveled snow but behind him, the sustained effort saw ice cap station increasingly become a small vesicle of air in the Greenland Dome. Frostbite attacked his fingers and his digging failed to keep up with the deposition. On Christmas Eve, he discovered two of his paraffin tins leaked away their precious contents, forcing him to ration his heating and lighting. At the end of December, a blizzard closed the tunnel and a disparaged quartile lay in his sleeping bag, unable to take the meteorological observations and concerned about carbon monoxide poisoning in the newly sealed up ice tomb, watching the tent slowly collapse in on him under the weight of accumulating snow. With the entrance tunnel hard packed, he dug his way to the surface from within one of the igloos and began the difficult but life and death task of digging to find the food and fuel cache in a featureless landscape, the hole he crawled out of, the only point of orientation available. At one point it took him three days to locate the cache, the brief bursts of effort he managed with the snow shovel thwarted by the deposition refilling whatever hole he made, and threatening to erase the bolt hole back to the safety of his miserable hermitage. The hatch he made to cover the new entry and egress from his home didn't work well, and subsequent storms gradually filled the igloo to the point he couldn't get out, so he dug his way to the surface from the second igloo to continue the meteorological series and to replenish his food and fuel supply from the cache. Mid-March, a blizzard dumped so much snow on top of the rations box he used to plug the vertical tunnel to the surface from that remaining igloo that he couldn't move it, and with the snow already eight feet thick above him and packing down, 
he resigned himself to waiting for the relief party to come and dig him out, expecting them sometime in the coming week. Watkins sent one of the de Havilland moths on a reconnaissance flight over Ice Cap Station, but the aviators couldn't make out any sign of Courtauld from the air. A sledge party made its way onto the dome and may have passed within a mile of the site, but the deep snow, burying everything but the ventilator pipe and a ragged remnant of a Union Jack on a flagpole, hid Ice Cap Station well enough that they had to return to the coast after two weeks of searching in crap weather, short on food and killing two of their dogs to keep the rest fed in a close-run race against time and weather. News got back to the UK about the missing meteorologist, and international search parties began preparing to head to East Greenland in much the same way people mobilised to help find the Red Tent, and then to find the French flight that carried Amundsen north in an effort to help find the Red Tent. Meanwhile, Courtauld measured his time in his cold cell, reading his books by candlelight until the candles ran out, and gradually cutting his food intake back to match his sessile lifestyle in order to eke out the rations for as long as possible. He ran out of luxuries such as chocolate and tobacco, and then began running out of staples such as pemmican and margarine. He wrote letters and kept a diary which constitutes some of the most calmly understated literature to arise from polar climes. His observations and resolutions while buried in the dome make Edward Wilson's diary notes for the winter sledging journey to Cape Crozier, already noted as some pretty calm writing, seem overwrought and panicky. With the candles used up, only a dot of light up the ventilator pipe and the blue flame of the primus stove relieved the interminable darkness. Courtauld's writing acknowledges he occasionally thought he could dig his way to the surface with his knife and walk out to the coast, but he managed to think his way through these periods of subterranean calenture before he started acting on them. Unable to spare fuel for making tea, he tried smoking the tea leaves in his pipe in the best traditions of the nicotine-deprived, the ritual standing him some comfort, if not the desired relief from the chemistry of the cravings. Five search parties were on the case, including further flights by the B-A-A-R-E moths, but it was a second sledging foray by Courtauld's colleagues that found the ventilator pipe and the ragged scraps of the Union Jack in early May. Courtauld used the last of the Primus fuel that morning to heat some porridge and resigned himself to a slow freezing to death when the racket of the sledge's arrival broke his five-month isolation. Exceedingly happy at his exhumation by Watkins, Rymill and Chapman, Courtauld rode back to the coast on one of the sledges, reading The Count of Monte Cristo in the bright sunlight of the Arctic in May. On reaching the trapper's hut, he shaved, bathed, and radioed his fiancée Molly to let her know he was okay and to apologise for the stress his going missing caused her. I cane British modes and mores a lot in this series, but I can't deny the Brits sometimes pull off stoicism with rare panache. On his return to the UK, Courtauld received some acclaim for his tribulations, but today, as with the inexpressible island troglodytes under Lieutenant Campbell. His tale of barely surviving the challenges posed by high latitudes doesn't get a lot of coverage. I think it's because lying still in the dark as time passes doesn't make for an exciting narrative, but I admire Courtauld for his calm and level-headed response to his five-month isolation and six-week-long inhumation. I hope that if I ever find myself buried alive, I follow his example instead of exhausting myself into a bruised and bloodied pulp bouncing off the walls and screaming and blubbing, as I suspect is the more likely outcome. 
Hold Cortal's calm and methodical approach to isolation and pressing danger in mind when I get to discussing Bolling Advanced Base at the other end of the planet at around the same time. Watkins cited The Friendly Arctic by Wilhelmer Stephenson as his handbook for Arctic operations, and the credibility this gave the increasingly discredited cretin saw Stephenson take a shine to the young Brit. Watkins applied Stephenson's habit of hunting to supplement the food carried in on the ship, and by studying the habits of the local Inuit, Watkins became more proficient at using a kayak and catching seals than any previous British explorer in the north. It was his proficiency at hunting that kept himself, Courtauld and Lemon fed, as they took two open boats, powered by four horsepower outboard engines, on a 600 nautical mile voyage around the southern end of East Greenland. This voyage, complicated by iceberg-related tribulations near the Pursotok Glacier, and a cache of fuel left by the Danish government comprising kerosene rather than gasoline, a perfectly understandable mistake when you consider that what the British call paraffin, and almost everyone else calls kerosene, the Danes call petroleum, surveyed a lot of the coast and saw Kortald return to his original fitness following his ordeal on the dome. Juno Watkins began discussing a dog-hauled crossing of Antarctica during his time at home following the BAARE, and while the Royal Geographical Society applauded his proposal and nominated £3,000, the shortfall in funding, even in an expedition paired back to the barest bones necessary for success, comprising four people, exceeded what Watkins thought he could bridge in the few months before the seasons necessitated a departure. A delay of a full year could get the project off the blocks, but Watkins felt loath to miss an entire season of exploration, and put Antarctica on the back burner. At Wilhelma Stephenson's urging, Watkins planned a return to Greenland in the next northern summer. With only a month in hand to prepare, he brought together his next expedition with funding from the RGS, Pan American Airways Corporation, and a publishing deal these last two facilitated by Stephenson. Watkins, Rymill, Chapman and Riley would live in a tent on the shores of the fjord that served as the site of much of the flying operations during the BAARE. The sustained effects of the Great Depression and Britain coming off the gold standard made getting any funding extremely difficult, so Watkins kept the projected cost of the expedition down by proposing the party subsist on food hunted from the landscape a la Stephenson. Early in the expedition, Juno went missing while out hunting. Rymil and Chapman found his empty, overturned kayak while out in the motorboat, and found some of Watkins' clothing on an ice floe. It's thought the kayak overturned in the wash from a carving iceberg, and that Watkins, unable to right it, stripped off to rid himself of the drag of his clothing in an attempt to swim to shore. No one ever found his body, and John Rymil took charge in his stead. The expedition completed its surveying work under Rymill's guidance, giving him valuable experience at leading a team in adverse conditions that really came to the fore in the British Grahamland expedition, slated for iced coffee attention after the next chapters in Bird and Ellsworth's stories are addressed. The Arctic expeditions out of the UK through the late 1920s and early 1930s saw a significant change in the British approach to high latitudes exploration 
with the focus on science becoming more than just a lever by which to rationalise personal ambitions and national territorial claims. This largely came about through the influence of James Wordy and Raymond Priestley. Their students formed the core of their own expeditions, and the approach to polar science that they role-modelled carried forward as those students became the next cohort of expedition leaders, and we'll hear more about several of them in future episodes of this series. These expeditions also marked a turning point in British attitudes to dog sledging as a means to get men and materials out into the landscape. Previous British affection for man-hauling fell away as the ghost of Sir Clements Markham faded in its influence and the glorification of Scott's tragic end gradually lost its gloss. The successes of others in using dog-powered transport finally convinced British explorers that learning to work dog teams constituted a good investment of time and energy. British polar teams became experts in handling dogs in the decades after this turning point period. Their instructional videos make compelling viewing even 20 years after the last dogs left Antarctica. The book, Of Men and Dogs, combines my love of Antarctica with my affection for canines and stands as a much-loved volume on my Antarctic bookshelves. Coming up in Ice Coffee, addressing the concurrent efforts of Bird, Ellsworth and Rymill, I decided to split the expedition coverage up into different episodes or blocks of episodes. I wasn't really happy with how alternating the narrative between Bird and Wilkins worked in covering the 1929 events. It might be a different matter in a book, but with the episodes restricted in length by the hosting plan, I don't want to leave multiple cliffhangers suspending your imagination for a month at a time. I'll see how that plays out, as there's a lot of expedition confluences in the offing. There's an episode about Richard Bird and Little America 2 in the production line, and after that releases in October, I'll switch to recording around the Antarctic Peninsula once more as my Austral summer contracting kicks off. A big season lined up for me, featuring around three months at sea. We've booked tickets for my son and a marine science colleague from New Zealand to join me for one of my voyages. I'm incredibly excited about introducing them to my shipboard colleagues and vice versa, and to Antarctica and penguins. Thanks to those listeners who helped out with some funds towards my son's adventure. You will be rewarded. On the Ice Coffee merchandise front, I'm too lazy and too wary of the shady practices at play in the clothing industry to try to put anything on the market, so if you want some Ice Coffee branded gear, it's on you to make it. I'll be grateful for any free advertising you give me by wearing my logo on a shirt, or skywriting my logo in letters five nautical miles long, or mowing my logo into a local sports grounds turf. Actually, sowing my logo in fast-growing grass seeds on a local sports grounds turf would have longer-lasting effects, now that I think about it. But Ice Coffee does not endorse the cool crime of monocotyledonous vandalism. Podcasts I've been listening to recently. Emily Burke got me listening to Behind the Bastards by Robert Evans, and I'm really enjoying it. Robert Evans got me listening to Disgraceland, and while I don't usually go into the backstory of the music I listen to much, the storytelling and soundscapes of the series are incredibly compelling. Lush stuff from a deep musical well. Robert Evans then came out with It Could Happen Here, and while that short series scared the pants off me, I think it's important to hear about Civil War from someone who's seen it up close in several nations, and to learn what to look for as precursors. Civil wars tend not to get called that until after they're over, 
So he puts himself into something of a Cassandra position with that podcast. But the information needs to be out there, regardless how much or how little praise and plaudits it earns him. Mechanical issues prevented me catching up with Emily and Atticus during recent peregrinations, and a backup plan to drop in on my way to a conference fell through. But I'm hoping to pull that particular confluence of simians and felines together someday. Until then, I feel invested in the survival of distant mammals in a way I haven't experienced since I was waiting for Greg Egan to finish publishing the Orthogonal Trilogy. It probably puts on show a lot more about the way my mind works than anyone operating outside it actually needs when I mention that I really, really want Mortimer to like my podcast. Mortimer is an elderly, tetchy curmudgeon and entirely fictional. He's a character that George Raab generated for his geologic podcast, and I love the conversations Mr. Raab has with his creation, littered as they are with clever wordplay and Mortimer's casually cruel incivility. Earning the affection and garnering the praise of easygoing people is easy. It's right there in the category descriptor. Earning the respect of curmudgeons is far harder. Earning the respect of a fictional curmudgeon is likely orders of magnitude harder again, but damn if I'm not eager to kick that imaginary goal. There's more Antarctica available for your ears this month with Antarcticast by Michael Kluger, coming on my radar in the final week of August. Michael's from Brazil, lives in Munich, and is slated to spend the coming Austral summer at Halley Station. To date, the series covers his selection and training for his role, and I look forward to following his journey from here on out. I think I already mentioned Antarctica Unfrozen, but I'll mention it again. Recorded at Scott Base in the midst of a summer research season, it captures the range and scope of the work carried out under the New Zealand aegis, and characterises life at Scott Base. I enjoyed all of the episodes, but the final one with Gary Wilson was particularly interesting and pertinent in the current political climate and actual climatological climate. The Antarctic Sun out of McMurdo still publishes occasionally, but the pace of their output is making my own slack efforts look manic. Greetings this episode to Maddie, who's now on a full-time gig, helping bring about the third iteration of Scott Base, if you accept my archaeological taxonomy of the place. Take care and appreciate your coffee.